Our Lord God, we extol you for your goodness and your beauty. We see in your creation that you are powerful and good and wise. We see in the, the carrying on of our lives your very meticulous fatherly care for us. We see in the, the revelation of the promise our salvation in Christ as well as in the sending of the Christ and the Spirit, your redemptive love toward us, the grace that we know in Him. We pray this morning as we consider the Word, we would um, be sharp in our minds, that your Spirit would illumine our minds, that we would be thankful for the Word. We'd appreciate just the privilege that it is to have time to hear from you in the Word, that you'd be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, again, locating Ezra Nehemiah as a book. These are the people coming out of what? Exile. Exile, good. Now, none of these are going to be trick questions. These should be quick review questions. And there are three things that we said that essentially need to be rebuilt. One is temple. Another is the city. So the temple and the city, so the place where God dwells with his people, the temple and the city need to be rebuilt. And the third is, well, the wall is the city. Somebody else said the people. The people need to be reformed or rebuilt. They've been disobedient to God's word. You guys remember that? Okay, so we want to really see the reform of the people, um, the rebuilding of the temple and the city. Those are the things that we're really going after as we walk through Ezra and Nehemiah, which is one book. Remember I told you guys? It's actually uh, one book. And we saw in Ezra as he came out um, that he began the, re the temple rebuilding process. We see his focus there. And we saw speeches by him. And what did we notice? What did we note about the people? Even as the temple was being rebuilt, there was opposition to the rebuilding of the temple from the peoples around. Um, led namely by who? Who was it mostly led by? It's not unimportant to the theme of restoration, and I want to ask why, but I want to ask, who was it mostly led by? I don't mean the name, but the people. The Samaritans. Okay, so now, why is that a big deal? That the Samaritans are actually the ones leading um, the revolt against rebuilding the wall in the city. You're going to see that again in Nehemiah. Why is that an important fact? Because they're part of Israel. Okay, so I'm going to point back to this because you need to remember it because it, it matters to this whole exile story. You have Israel and Judah. Both comprise... Israel. You guys follow me so far? <laughs> I know it's like, ah, uh, you know, but here you go. Okay, Israel and Judah. This is the northern kingdom. This is the southern kingdom. Um, Jerusalem is in Judah. So here's my question. When, were the, when was Israel, the northern kingdom, exiled? They're exiled by the Assyrians when? Josh, you're getting at a basic answer. What were you going to say? 
100 years before the southern kingdom, okay? So the northern kingdom is, the, the southern kingdom's exiled when? Of Judah, under Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar sweeps in somewhere between 605 B.C. and 586 B.C., 586 B.C. being when the exile is complete, okay? So is when the southern kingdom is exiled. The northern kingdom is exiled just over 100 years prior to that by the Assyrians, okay? So this, this is right, this is complete, Judah in 586 B.C., Okay, um, under Babylon, right, or Nebuchadnezzar. And this one is 100 years prior under Assyria. Okay, I, I bring this up and I'm going to labor this point for a reason. Um, these, this northern kingdom, when, when the people from Judah returned to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple in the city under Ezra Nehemiah, which is what happens right here. So we got Ezra Nehemiah. Okay. Um, when they return, the northern kingdom's opposing them. Why is that a problem for Israel? I mean, Israel as a whole, not north and south. Why is that a problem? Why is that a problem with regard to God's promise of the restoration? This matters to the prophetic story. So if you, if you don't get this, in some sense you're going to miss the prophets. And then what's that? If they are at war with each other, then they are not one nation. Okay, they're not one nation. What's, what's, the, what's the promise of the new covenant restoration of God's people. He'll regather Israel as a whole. I will make a new covenant with the house of Jacob and the house of huh? All right. So you guys, you guys remember these passages? Um, you, you, you remember the passages? All right. So let me, let me, let me read it to you. Um, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31, with the house of Israel, northern kingdom, and the house of Judah, Judah southern kingdom. You guys catch that? Okay. He's going to reunite these two. Make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why the, so here's why I'm laboring to tell you this point. Has the exile ended? And the new covenant restoration of Israel begun if the northern kingdom is still opposing the southern kingdom? No. Hasn't. So while Ezra and Nehemiah has us on exile, you know, coming back from the exile to rebuild the temple and the city and to reform the people, we have two major problems. One, the northern kingdom is opposing the southern kingdom. At this point, they're called the Samaritans. Two, What's wrong with the southern kingdom people? They've got issues. They have issues, to say the least. <laughs> Namely, are they, what's that? Specifically intermarriage. Specifically, they're marrying pagan women. 
and going off into idolatry. Always been a problem for Israel, right? For the people of God. The, the men see attractive women who aren't believers. They marry them and they follow them into the abyss. Okay, so this is the, this is the, the ongoing problem. The people are not reforming and the, no, the northern kingdom's opposing the southern kingdom. Now, I want you to catch this because here's when you know the new covenant restoration of Israel is about to begin. I, I want you to hear the language. Behold, uh, here's remember, come in the Gospels, Samaritans and Jews still not getting along, right? Northern kingdom, southern kingdom still not getting along. Behold, the Holy Spirit will come, on you, come upon you with power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. What's that? Southern kingdom. And Samaria, northern kingdom, and the ends of the earth, Gentiles. Are you guys hearing it? So then the apostles go to the, preach the, to the southern kingdom, and you have a Pentecost in Jerusalem and Judea. Then they go to Samaria and preach, and you have another Pentecost among the Samaritans. And then they go to the Gentiles, and you have another Pentecost. Now, it doesn't mean that Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, like the pouring of the Spirit, um, happens three times. It's that it's happening in three locations or among all three groups of people. That's the point, right? So that the Spirit is poured out once, but now you're seeing it, him go and restore all the peoples. Okay, so you, you can't lose sight of that because these just aren't historically tossed in bits that kind of sound nice, right? There's a reason for them. Um, all right, so we have the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the city wall, and the reformation of the people. And we have the problem of the fact that the people are not being reformed and the northern kingdoms opposing them. So even though this looks great in many ways, it's still not the answer we're looking for. Still not the answer. Okay, so let's look at Nehemiah 1. We'll start to see a pattern, hopefully, that we saw between Nehemiah, um, between, hopefully that we saw with Ezra. We'll also see with Nehemiah. Remember, Ezra is the priest who's basically leading the people. Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the king. He's going to rebuild the city wall. So, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Now why? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. You guys hearing why they're in great trouble and shame? Okay. The city's not what in the condition it ought to be in, right? This is the city in which God dwells with his people. This is the city of peace, Jerusalem, right? As, I, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, 
confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cup, I was cupbearer to the king. Okay, so I want to stop and consider this for a bit. Nehemiah weeps and prays on behalf of his people because he understands the city wall being torn down means his people are still in disarray. Right? He understands that. He also understands it means they're still acting wickedly. So he's going to pray and repent. Okay, um, he's going to weep. He has this kind of sensibility that it matters that God's people are walking in wickedness, such that he's going to weep and pray and mourn. Now, do you notice language in his prayer that takes you to other scripture? Look at verse 5. <laughs> I'll start giving you hints. Look at verse 5. What, what does that take you to? The phrase, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps commandments is a formula that we've seen throughout the Old Yep, so keep your hand there. Look at Exodus 34. I put it on the board for you, so if you're wondering, do you see it anywhere else? There you go. Exodus 34. Um, you guys remember... Um, this whole passage, Moses goes up on the mountain, makes the covenant with the people of Israel. While he's up on the mountain, while he's up on the mountain, they're already breaking the covenant. Um, this is, by the way, one of the reasons why you do not say, well, Moses is a covenant of works. Because they're, they're literally breaking it while he's on the mountain. Right? Getting it. And then he comes down from the mountain and breaks that. And then what does Moses end up doing? Trying to intercede for them. Ask God for mercy. What does God then do? Says Moses, you can't intercede from that for them. Right? Like essentially he rejects Moses' attempt to be, the, to be the, the mediator between God and man in that sense. Um, he is a mediator in another sense. He speaks on behalf of God, but not, he's not the mediator in the sense that he can offer his life in place of the people. So he's rejected in that offer. And then God turns and says, I'm going to renew my covenant with my people. I'm going to be kind to them. He prays for them. I will be kind to them. And then we get this passage as Moses gets, as, you know, makes the new tablets, right? The renews the covenant. We get this passage, Exodus 34 and verse 6, because Moses wanted to see God's glory. If you remember, the Lord passes by. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You, you hear the, the emphasis on grace? What covenant are we in? Moses? I'm just, just pointing that out. Okay. 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the children of the fathers, excuse me, of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So here is a God who keeps steadfast love and faithfulness, right? Um, and this becomes a continual theme that you're going to see throughout Scripture so that Nehemiah can say, you know, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, right? Who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, which is going to get picked up in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 34, 6, and a variety of other places. Now note what Nehemiah then goes on to pray. Uh, as he's praying for the people of Israel, uh, he talk, talks about how they've sinned, and he says, we have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. What does he mean by those, those phrases? The commandments, the statutes, and the rules. Is he just repeating himself? Is this like, is it like, you know, when I preach, sometimes I do restatement, I say the same thing two or three times in different ways. Is that all he's doing here? Probably not. Because Probably not. If we, because if we think about it, commandments are referring to the Decalogue. Commandments are referring to the Decalogue. Go ahead. Okay, so, or you mean the civil laws? Civil laws. Civil laws. Okay, so, so just so Tim can um, be shown to be correct, look at Exodus 20 briefly. Or at least largely correct. You'll, you'll see a distinction here. And God spoke, verse 1, and God spoke all these words. I'm Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You guys remember this? Okay, and now we're going to go through the ten words or the ten commandments. Now notice um, chapter 21 and verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. You guys tracking? Okay, so he's going to show you rules and then statutes as you go on. There are commandments, statutes, and rules they govern different things. Commandments have reference to the moral law of God that always stays in place, but the statutes and rules have reference to the civil laws and it's how you're going to govern the nation civilly by application of those commandments to, the, to their lives, right? So, for example, um, you shouldn't murder. So you know what else you shouldn't do? If you have an ox that has a tendency to gore people, you shouldn't let the ox run free. You, why? Because that's an application of the don't murder. You understand why that would be? Okay, so these kinds of things. So you, that's an application. There are, other, there are applications in our contemporary society of you shall not kill or murder. I'll give you an example. Therefore, you shouldn't drive your car 65 miles per hour in a residential area. Same kind of thing. You understand that? Okay, so statutes and rules. We get, we get those same ideas um, in, um, in the statutes and rules with regard to the ceremonial system, what priestly vestments, how they come into the temple um, or the tabernacle, uh, how they slaughter the animal, how they set themselves apart. You guys see all that too. They're violating all that. They're violating all that. 
just as a side note, um, good legislators, when they make laws, rules for your society, all they're doing, if they're good, is applying the natural law or the moral law that we know to the particular circumstances in which you live. Why speed limit? Well, thou shalt not murder, right? Um, now, they can go overboard with that, and you know when that starts to happen, but you understand what they're trying to do, right? So um, that's the kind of thing that's happening um, that he's saying, we've not kept your commandments, we've not kept your statutes, we've not kept your rules. Like we've just violated all of it, <laughs> okay? Um, now it goes on. It, it'd be a good exercise, by the way, sometime with your kids, driving around, talking about various laws of your society. Ask, which, te- which of the Ten Commandments is or is not being appro- applied helpfully or properly here? It'd be something worth talking about. And particularly the second table, from honor your father and mother or all authorities, honor authorities, all the way down to don't bear false witness, don't cover your neighbor's stuff, whatever. Like, which one of those second table laws actually being applied here, what, what, which one are we attempting to apply? Are we doing a good job of applying that in our current context? You know, yes or no? It's a great place to have a conversation, by the way. All right. Um, he goes on to, goes on to um, say this, verse 8. Remember the words that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. I just want you to pay attention to that word, remember. Remember is doing what? What's he, what's he doing with God here when he's praying? Remember what? The word that you command your servant Moses. In other words, he's, he's calling back and saying, God, keep your promise. Remember the promise you've made to us. Remember is always a covenantal kind of term. You'll see it in Genesis chapter 8 in verse 1. Not this Sunday, but the next Sunday. You'll see it in Genesis 8, chap, uh, verse 1, when, when it says, uh, God remembered. God remembered Noah, right? But remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I'll gather them and bring them to the chosen place to make my name dwell there. Now you see that, you see that promise in um, Ezekiel 36. You see it in Jeremiah 31 and 32. You see it in Isaiah. This is what the Lord's going to do. He's going to bring you back. If you repent, walk with me. I'm going to bring you back in the land and make you dwell there. Right? Okay. Now, but notice he says Moses teaches that. He's calling all the way back to Moses. Where? Where does Moses teach all that? Deuteronomy. So look, notice I have it on the board. Okay, so look at Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30. It's actually in 29 and 30. Just after he said in uh, 27 and 28, here are the blessings and cursings if you violate this. I'm going to curse you this way. If you keep it, I'll bless you this way, right? Now, when we get to Deuteronomy 29 and 30, we get these promises. Notice what it says. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, 
which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Notice what Moses is telling them beforehand. You're going to go into the land, you're going to sin, and the Lord's going to do what? Exile you to a number of nations. Like, Moses is telling them before, like, they haven't even gotten to the land yet, and Moses is already telling them, you're going to get there, and then God's going to drive you out because of your sin. All right, so he's predicting the exile way before it happens. Right, Moses is writing about 1500 BC. Exile happens when? Six to seven hundred. So somewhere around 900 to 1,000 years prior to the exile. Think about that. Nearly a millennium prior to the exile. Moses is telling them, well, when this happens, when you're exiled, okay, um, and, and then return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today. This is a new covenant promise. This is a new covenant promise all the way back in Deuteronomy. You're gonna, the Lord's going to drive you into exile. You're going to return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of, the heaven, of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your children, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may, li that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord again will take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Do you guys see that language repeated in the prophets? Sure you do. And you see it fulfilled in the new covenant. When he's writing the law on the hearts. Okay. So that's what Nehemiah is praying for. That's the language you see him coming back to. Go back again to verse 8 of Nehemiah 1. Remember the word that you commanded your servant, Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. That's the curse. Exile. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, your outcasts are in the are in the, uh, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven. You guys remember that language? Deuteronomy 30. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attended to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What is Nehemiah praying? He's repenting confessing we have violated the covenant that you told us not to we've sinned against a god who's gracious and merciful and therefore since we've sinned against a god who's gracious and merciful i'm going to ask you to remember your promise what's your promise you'd be good to us and to our children after us you'd bring us back you'd save us 
Keep that promise. Restore us. Bring us back from the uttermost parts of the heavens where we've been scattered. Save us. Now, I'm going to give you a little hint. This doesn't get fulfilled here. Right? doesn't get fulfilled here. That becomes part of the problem. It doesn't get fulfilled until Christ comes. Right? Note, here's what I want you to keep noting, though. It's the same promise going through the whole Old Testament. They're waiting for fulfillment that cannot come until the Christ comes. Right? Christ is fulfilling and bringing to bear these promises. This promise. He doesn't come bringing a different set of promises and changing the game. Right? He, he's doing this. He's fulfilling everything here. This is one of the things I explained to the radius students last week, or this, or, well, last week, it feels like last week, earlier this week, that I want you to keep in mind structurally. And we, yes, we are going to look at the rest of Nehemiah 1. It won't take very long, or Nehemiah won't take very long. But something I want you to keep in mind always when you're re reading your Bible. In one sense, the Old Testament has interpretive authority over the New Testament. In one sense. Now notice, in one sense. The Old Testament has interpretive authority over the New Testament. In one sense would that be? In this sense. You cannot go to the end of the story and read it and understand it if you have not read the beginning of the story. In the sense that you have to understand, in order to understand what's happening here in the New Testament fulfillment, you have to understand what's happening here. Because this, the New Testament fulfillment, is the answer to what's occurring here. So in that sense, the Old Testament has authority, interpretive authority over the New Testament. You guys tracking with me so far? Any book you read, it's that way. The that, the, um, you, you don't start at like the climax and the resolution because you won't understand any of that <laughs> if you don't go back to the original setting and the problem. Is, you guys tracking with me? Because that's answering that. Now, in another sense, the New Testament has interpretive authority over the Old Testament. In another sense. In what sense? Well, when you read the end of the book, suddenly what's come before makes a lot more sense than it did. Simple enough? If you read the setting and the problem, you get to the climax, and you never get to the resolution, right? You never get to the resolution. You never get to what's happening you're not quite sure how it's all going to work out. And you guys know this because you read a book and suddenly you get to that point and you go, oh, that's what's been... And then everything starts clicking before, right? It's the same kind of a thing. In that sense, the New Testament has interpretive authority over the old because now you have clarification as to what all this was pointing at, okay? Uh, keep that in mind. Because you've got to read, in that sense, the Bible in both directions. You have to. You cannot just read it from the New Testament to the Old because you're not going to even know what's being resolved. And you cannot just read it from the Old Testament to the New because you're not going to understand all of the Old Testament types and shadows in their fullest sense until you see them meet their anti-type in Christ. Okay? Their fulfillment here in Christ. All right. So... Nehemiah 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, and so this is the same period in which Ezra's gone back to restore the temple. 
Now Nehemiah wants to go back and restore the city wall. Same period under Artaxerxes. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the what? Good hand of my God was upon me. Are you seeing the similarity to Ezra now? Here it is. The good hand of my God was upon me. Same thing that was being said about Ezra, right? Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servants heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I had I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which, on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dra dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate so and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that was upon me for good. Here you're getting that emphasis again. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So he's being harassed by some of the surrounding peoples, also be harassed by Samaria as was Ezra, but here by some of the surrounding peoples, chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. 
They consecrated as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Anil, and next to him the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur the son of Imri built. And then you're going to get a long list of everybody who's building, right? And how much they're building and all the sections they're repairing. So you're going to get this big, long list all the way through chapter 3 of all the various um, tribes and men and priests, etc., who are building and their success in the building of that thing. Um, it's actually going quite swimmingly, but opposition is setting in. So look at chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria. Did you guys just catch that? What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, just as a side note, notice the Sumerians, uh, Samaritans, sorry, who are northern king of Israel, have yoked up with who? The Ammonites. Right? And this is a clear indicator that the promise of new covenant restoration has not begun. Right? So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that, we were, that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is, burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all, their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the other builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. 
So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon in his right hand. This is days. At night they're guarding, during the day they're working. They're wearing the same clothes, keeping their weapons on them, right? Um, you could imagine how exhausting that is. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, without our sons and daughters, we are many, so, or excuse me, with our sons and daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. What's the complaint? What's the complaint of some of the people in Jerusalem, some of the Jews? Yeah, so we're like, we're running out of money and supplies, we're hungry, um, basically, our sons and daughters are being treated like slaves in this labor. Um, we have our houses mortgaged. Like, everything's basically out on debt at this point. <laughs> and, and this is not going well. So, Nehemiah responded, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. Why is he angry? What are the nobles doing? He gets angry. Notice the people are crying out because they're all in debt. Who does he become angry with? The nobles. Because what are the lenders doing? They're exacting interest on their brothers. Were Jews supposed to do that? No. no. Right? So he's ticked off. And I held a great assembly against them. And said to them, we, are, we, as far as we are able, have brought back sorry, our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. They were, they were enslaving each other. The nobles were. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise, so may he, be sh may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, in case you didn't know, 20 to 32 is 12, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor, 
The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. You remember in the Mosaic Covenant, the guys who lead or who act like kings are not supposed to like take all the money from the people and they're supposed to be servants in this way and Nehemiah is doing it, right? I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem said to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hekaphirim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. So they're calling him in for a meeting, but actually he knows like they're not <laughs> in planning any good. And I sent messengers, messengers to them saying, I'm doing great, a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it, to, and you come, and come, sorry, leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalit, for, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these report, reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. In other words, do you hear what they're doing? We've got a bunch of slander against you. We're ready to go tell Artaxerxes. Right? Here's the slander. You're, you're setting yourself up as the king. You're building these walls so you can rebel. And you even have prophets saying you're the king in Judah. Right? So you better come meet with us or we're going to go tell King Artaxerxes this. Verse 8. Then I sent him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking... Their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man, a man as I run away? Now notice the first question. What's the first question? Should such a man as I run away? In other words, they're coming to kill you. Let's lock you in the temple. What's his answer? The good hand of God is with me. Why would I run away? Right? Am I suddenly now going to stop trusting the Lord? Why am I going to run away? He's been good this whole time. He's been good. But notice his other question, which is equally important. And what, what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. What, what's, what? This is a fascinating and important answer. 
What, what, what do you notice about this answer? What's the first answer? What's the first answer? Yeah, n yes. The, okay. What's the first answer? What's that? I'm not going to go. Well, that's, that's the second answer. Sorry, the temple. I'm not going to go into the temple. How can a man like me go into the temple and live? I can't go into the temple and live. And the first, the first answer is, I'm the kind of man who trusts the Lord. I'm the man who's good good hand the Lord is on. Why would I flee? In other words, I'm a godly man whom the Lord has been caring for and with this whole time. No way I'm fleeing to the temple to hide from foreign armies or from enemies. No way. I'm going to stand here with the Lord because I know his good hand is upon me. And then the second part of it, no way I can go into that temple and not die because I'm a sinner. <laughs> Are you guys tracking what he's saying here? All right. Why, why do I point? Yes, sir. Well, he's got. Yeah. And Drew, it's a little bit more than that because he's not a priest. Right as well. So he's not one who can go in. So I want to ask this question. What do you learn that's um, true about the Christian life then and now? Because I think this is a fundamentally clear picture of the reality of those of us in Christ. Okay, so, well, let's, let's take the first one. I'm a man whom God is with. Right? The Lord has set me apart to this task. I, I'm not going to flee. What, what's he talking about? He's a what? Well, he's a saint, isn't he? A man who's been set apart by the Lord as holy for a particular task. Okay? I can't go into the temple and live. If I go in there, I will surely die. What else do we learn about him? He's a sinner, right? That is not discontinuous with our setting right now. So that every letter, Paul starts off saying to the saints who are in Corinth. To the saints in Corinth, men should not be sleeping with their dad's wives. You want to, like, have you ever stopped and thought about that? Okay. And you're praising it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, are you and, you, and you, and you think it's gracious to let that go on. You guys understand, like, this is the same picture. He gets it. I can't come before the holy God and not die, right? Um, I can't flee from these enemies. I'm a man of God. The good hand of the Lord is with me, right? Um, I'm not a priest so that I can go into God's presence in that way. What he knows I need a priest to go in there for me, right? Um, all right. My point being, the Christian life in the Old Testament and the Christian life in the New Testament does not really look any different as to the nature of being sinners and saints. Where it looks different as to their external uh, national life, 
they're a nation state with particular laws governing them under Moses. It looks different in that way. But the substance is the same. Go on. Verse 12, And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. In other words, this guy was baiting him to death, to his death as well. Like, okay, Nehemiah will certainly come into God's temple. Maybe that's one way to kill him. Had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Like, remember them. You understand what kind of remembering he's talking about here. So the wall, this is the imprecatory psalm kind of prayer. So the wall was finished on the 20th, 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. How long did it take him to build the wall in the midst of all this opposition? 52 days. Okay, that is a massive project. And those of you who do any kind of building know that even if you don't have this kind of opposition, it's hard to get done quickly. <laughs> so, um, with, with newer equipment. Well, if you think about the permitting well, this is what I'm saying. Like, sometimes you probably look over at the county permitting and the city permitting and think, these, are, these men are Shirley Sandbalat and <laughs> Tobiah, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> let's, let's keep going. Um, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Like, we don't think so highly of ourselves anymore, right? For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and son of Jehoanan, and had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Okay, so we're going to stop there. What, what's the last thing you're, you're hearing? Cities wide and large, but what's the problem still? The people in it are few. No houses are rebuilt. Like, this isn't the kind of, like, I'm going to make you dwell there in safety. I'm going to gather you all back up and make you dwell there in safety. Like, there, here's the walls, but the reformation of the people hasn't happened. Right? Walls built. Temples built. Walls built. No reformation of the people. Right? Which is, which is the purpose of it all so that they might be God's people and he might be their God. 
Um, the Lord had prospered these men, men, and yet, yet, in spite of all of God's kindness, in a very real sense, they still remain in exile. Right? Okay, we will look at Nehemiah 7, 5 through the end of Nehemiah, but we will not do it next week as I'll be gone at the Puritan Conference, and we will not do it the week after that as we have the couples retreat, which I'll also be after at. So we will come back, um, you know, we'll be off two weeks and then come back the week after that. So what, what week is that? 21st. The 21st of October, we'll be back to finish Nehemiah, and then we'll make some attempt at Chronicles. Right, so if you're like, what do we read next? First and second Chronicles. That's a lot. Yes, it is. We should survey it relatively quickly because we've already looked at Samuel and Kings. Chronicles has a, some different emphases we'll pick up and then we'll close out the Old Testament. At which time, hopefully, if, we, if everything goes swimmingly, by the time we come to uh, the winter, um, when, we, when we come back after Christmas break, we should be beginning the New Testament and finally seeing all of the threads, if you will, being pulled um, into this one who becomes incarnate. Right? All right. Any questions? Was the deeper pocket of today? I mean, I was checking it, but I mean, I, it doesn't look up to the bottom if I'm looking at the right side. The iTunes thing is way out of order, I think. From what I can tell, right? It's kind of janky. So, okay, so the latest ones are in the process of being uploaded. Um, I think the website has them in order. They might be in order on SoundCloud, but on iTunes, they're all out of order. And I'm not sure what happened there exactly. But we've had, we had some issues ever since it got torn down uh, by the Iranian hackers. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> what, what, what's that? I think it has been the Some of it's been fixed. So, yes, sir. Yeah, so I have a question, sort of. Uh, he's appealing to the Mosaic Covenant right early on. Yep. Uh, and doing that. Many other guys, including like Moses, uh, kind of appealed to the Abrahamic Covenant. Yep. The more gracious covenant, hey, we're screwing this one up. But remember the promise you made. Yep. Because the Mosaic Covenant has, if you will, um, both that set of laws that they can be cursed or blessed by, but also contains within it the same gracious promises. That's why you see in Deuteronomy 30, I'll circumcise your hearts, I'll bring you back to the nations. So that's where he's going. I'm the kind of God who, who is kind to you. It also has within it a sacrificial system that says, I'm going to provide for you even when you sin. Right? I'm going to bring you atonement for your sin. So there's really two ways, if you will, to look at the Mosaic Covenant. I don't think that, <clears throat> but they, they go back to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because that's where they get the first promises that are now running through the, through the Mosaic Covenant as well. The, co the Mosaic Covenant has an external form that is very legal. Has an external form that's very legal, but has an internal promise that remains the same. I'm going to provide for you in the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, etc. Um, so, 
So you'll see Moses going back to, particularly Moses going back to Abraham. But now you'll see them go back to Moses because even in Deuteronomy, you have this promise of this coming new covenant. Okay, yeah, he's the one, Moses is the one that specifically promised to go into exile and then come back out. Yeah. We're ready to come back out of exile. You made this promise. So Moses is pitching forward to the new covenant there. And so in some sense, you can argue that actually what Nehemiah is doing is he's calling upon the new covenant promise. Right? Because that's its first, I mean, that's where it's being prophesied first. It's the same language that's picked up by, it's the same language that's picked up by um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Um, pre-exilic and somewhat exilic. <laughs> so it just, it's Jeremiah's pre-exilic, obviously. Does Isaiah prophesy at all in the midst of the exile? I, I feel like Isaiah's pre-exilic. Yeah. Yeah. They're generally pre-exilic prophets. Um, Daniel's obviously an exilic prophet, though he's actually in the writings and not in the prophets, though he is a prophet in the exile. Um, there are post-exilic prophets, you know. Um, come on, why am I forgetting the prophet, the prophet who says, like, you're rebuilding these houses and not the temple? And he come Haggai? Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So, or Haggai, or however you say his name. I don't know either. I, in English, I'm not sure. It'd probably be easier for me to read it in Hebrew. Um, but we bring names over sometimes in odd ways. Um, okay, any other questions? All right, so read the rest of Nehemiah. Um, you actually have three weeks to do it, <laughs> so no excuse. And I would encourage you to start working on Chronicles because First and Second Chronicles isn't short. And the first several chapters of First Chronicles is a big, long genealogy, which isn't exciting. Um, but it's worth taking some time to pay attention to what's happening and ask the question, why? Why start a book with a big, long genealogy? It's the last book of the Old Testament canon. So we can pray the prayer yeah, so you can, it's not so you can pray the prayer of Jabez. I want to answer that <laughs> right off. <laughs> so, okay, <laughs> it is not for that reason. All right, let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the kindness that you have shown us in Christ, the way that you have relentlessly made and kept your promises to us. Even, even the example that Nehemiah is, is a man who is godly and knows you are with him, yet a man who does not believe he can just nonchalantly walk into your presence in and of himself, but he knows that he needs a high priest to take him there who's made atonement for him. We pray that we would trust in Christ as well, even as you grow us in godliness and righteousness, even as we see your spirit make us more like your son, that we would simultaneously be ever mindful of the fact that it is because of your son and only because of him that we have the privilege of drawing near to you. In Jesus' name, amen.